This afternoon, I'd like to talk about the next two paramis, wisdom and energy. And I like the analogy um, of crossing the flood that the Buddha used, crossing um, the floods of all the difficulties to get to the other shore of liberation. And the analogy is that in order to cross to the other shore, you need to build a boat. You need a boat. And you have to get to know the boat to be able to navigate the currents so that you can um, reach the other shore. And the first three paramis are to do with navigating that, building your boat and navigating it. And in the process getting a taste of wisdom and compassion, starting to really sense that so it gives you um, the inspiration to continue. And you need to build carefully and um, really make sure your boat uh, has a good foundation and spacious. Um, And that, of course, uh, generosity and sila and renunciation, those qualities that help us build the boat. And um, it makes it warm-hearted and spacious enough that you'll get nice companions um, to come along with you. That's the generosity and um, sila. So we're setting a ground of non-harming and of kindness and compassion and with the renunciation, we're withdrawing from distractions so we're not going in different directions with our boat. But we are continuing to set for the other shore. And um, with, and at the same time, without the oars of energy, we won't get anywhere. Um, we need both. But I'll begin with um, wisdom because um, as we begin to release and let go of things, we start to see clearly enough that there's space for wisdom to develop. And this is from Acharya Dhammapala, who wrote a treatise on the Paramis. And he says, through wisdom, the Bodhisattva perfects the character of a Buddha, and through compassion, the ability to perform the works of a Buddha. So there are those two wings again. Through wisdom crosses the stream of becoming, of becoming different identities, personas, the ways we mistake, mistakenly see ourselves in the world and of suffering through the compassion and of suffering through compassion leads others across so our own suffering and the response to the suffering of others through compassion we tremble with empathy for all but because the compassion is accompanied by wisdom the heart is unattached so we don't drown in the process In our compassion for others, we don't fall into the water. 
Through wisdom and compassion, one becomes one's own protector and the protector of others. So that's interlocking web of wisdom and compassion. And it's like a mesh that's innate in all of us. And the process of our practice is to uncover and reveal that. So the last few days, we're setting this ground of non-harming. We're withdrawing from distractions. That's the renunciation. So that there's some support and stillness to see clearly. Yesterday, Gil was talking about renunciation as letting go of the distractions so that the mind can become stable and settled, leading to clarity and wisdom. And renunciation both leads to wisdom and is also perfected by wisdom. And when we say that perfected by wisdom, it means we're not caught in some of the kind of deluded versions of renunciation that are denial or repression or um, tinged with aversion. And there's a way that that um, freedom from distraction makes space for the seeds of wisdom to grow. And we nurture the seeds of wisdom by gently, continually paying kind attention, letting things unfold on their own and reveal how things actually are. And you may also have noticed as you explored renunciation these past few days that at times when you stay with wanting or with aversion, it actually comes and goes on its own without giving in to the impulse. That, that it's possible to be with a wanting mind or with the aversive mind and not feed it and that it can release all on its own. Another thing Gil talked about yesterday was having this inner reference point of non-harming and of the value of that, the wisdom of that, of really knowing that reference point to come back to over and over. And the value of starting fresh. Each moment is a new moment, so we're not carrying the burdens of the past, which can prevent us from seeing clearly and color the way we look at things. I heard um, a beautiful story of this inner value um, on a a radio program not long ago, and this was um, a surgeon, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten what country he came from in the Middle East, and it was his own his own country he'd gone back to, and there was a war zone, and he was treating whoever came in, regardless of which side they were on, he was healing people. But he got um, um, harassments from both sides, from his own people who felt he shouldn't be spending energy on saving (laughs) the enemy, and from the other, you know, from both sides. And um, someone at the interviewer asked him um, how he could manage that how he was able to deal with that. And he said, 
What saved him was his Hippocratic oath. He knew deep in every fiber of his being that he was committed um, to not causing harm. To whatever he did um, was to protect life. And so he saw each person as they came in as a suffering being and not as friend or foe. And that was, he was able to um, stay true to that value because he really had taken it on as an inner commitment. And so we can feel that settle in. What are our deep values? And they can help us when we're, when we're feeling overwhelmed. And then Gil spoke about inner wealth and recognizing our inner wealth. And there's a wisdom to recognizing that, that we have so many of these innate qualities. We can really touch in and sense them. And because of that, we can begin to recognize the forces of distraction and wanting and aversion and confusion that are so strong in our culture, pulling us away. And so we really need to nurture and water the inner wealth that we have. Even if we just catch little flashes of them, we can pay attention to that instead of paying attention to what's wrong. Because shining the light on them enables them to grow. And so we're developing the skills and nurturing them. And the next piece is applying them. It's one thing to recognize them. It's a whole other to apply them. And that's the wisdom of the Buddha, this direct knowing that's different from conceptual knowledge. Um, In um, the Theravadan tradition, there's these three types of wisdom or knowledges. And the first is pariyati, and that's what we learn through reading and through listening to talks. We start to see it and read it and think, oh yes, that makes sense. And that the next is patipati, and that's putting it into practice, learning for ourselves, beginning to practice with it so we start to um, dissolve some of the veils of confusion and greed and um, ignorance. And then there's the last, which is the realization of that, and that's pativeda. Then we become confident that we actually clearly do know. We know um, what's true in this situation that's free from opinions, from biases, from reactions, from assumptions. It's this real inner sense of this is how it is. We just know. And it's not that I know. There's knowing, a pure knowing of what's going on. And then unless we know what to do (laughs) with what we know, it's not really a parami. Unless we can embody the wisdom, the knowing, 
then it's not going to light up all the other paramis. So unless the paramis are clar- the, all the other parafi- paramis are clarified and perfected, it isn't actually the parami of wisdom. It's a progress, a progression, um, but not fully embodying. So what is it that we're knowing? What is it when we see clearly? And there's a whole range of things that the Buddha talked about, what it means to understand, what it is we're understanding, the insights. And some of them are right view, and that's or skillful view. That's really understanding the noble truths, that there's suffering, not that I'm suffering, but the understanding that there's suffering in life. And then the understanding that reactivity is a cause of suffering, clinging whenever we hold on tightly to something that's inevitably going to change, there's suffering. And then the capacity for, to let go, to, for suffering to cease, and the path to that developing these paramis and wise speech and action and meditation and so forth. And then through right view or wise view, we start to see um, these three particular insights that the Buddha described. Unsatisfactoriness. Because of the changing conditions, things aren't, there's no permanent satisfactoriness. And then that everything changes, everything, the impermanence of things. What, whatever we, and we can think that, yeah, we know everything changes. But having the depth of wise understanding of that begins to free us in deeper and deeper ways. We begin to be able to be with aging and the changes of aging, with loss, with um, all the different stuff, that with gain and loss and praise and blame, all those different things, we really begin to get that it's not going to work trying to make things continually pleasant. And we know the mind wants to do that, but we understand that um, that's not going to lead to happiness. And we understand and start to see that um, nothing has a solid, permanent existence, that there isn't a solid I. And it's not that the Buddha was saying no self, that there's no existence. He was more pointing us towards what's not self, the ways we take ourselves to be. And that's very freeing. And you've seen all the different identities we can assume on retreat. We become the great one because the sitting went well. Or we become the useless one because we've been distracted all sit. And Wisdom is the understanding that that was a state of distraction, 
this was a state of disgust. This was a state of everything's working. It's all changing. And we stop identifying with it. And we stop projecting that onto others. That this person is an angry person, or a particular way, or classifying people according to their appearance, gender, race, class, in all these ways. Being able to release fixed identities is freeing. And we really get a deep understanding of how identifying and clinging to anything is going to be suffering. And when we see how it actually is, it starts to free us up from the concepts we have about things, the beliefs we have about things. And we're freed from the limiting beliefs we have about ourselves and we have about others or about the world. There was a time in my practice when at the beginning of each day I would sort of bow um, three times, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and then I would add, and may I be free from limiting beliefs about myself, my practice, the teachings. It was so helpful to keep reminding to be free from limiting beliefs and to notice how, um, what it feels like to have a limited belief, to be shrunk <laughs> to this particular way of seeing self, other, the world, and that possibilities um, are available when that releases. So wisdom brings clarity. We can sense with the wisdom of the body, sensing in the body what's actual. Through, we can look at the world through wisdom eyes of seeing things as they are. What am I really seeing? Not what am I seeing through certain color, color of glasses, of habit or view or assumption. And as we do that, the wisdom begins to fall into the heart. And so the contractions in the heart are freed. So it's a body, mind, heart way of experiencing clear seeing. And we can know with this wisdom, heart, mind, that we're not our thoughts. We're not our beliefs. And we also know that difficult moments will change. Beautiful moments will change. And gradually we can cease grasping after. Sometimes when I've had wonderful insights, I notice this is my insight and I'm holding on to my insight. And that prevents any other insights from arising. The space is filled <laughs> with this particular one. So it's this letting go over and over, making room for new, fresh understandings. And what's freeing about that is that we're including and incorporating what's being revealed in the changing circumstances in the world. There's um, 
It enables us to incorporate new information, to have flexibility, so that um, what may have seemed true, and we really got fixed around it, we're open to, oh, now I'm seeing it this way. Now it's being understood this way. So we're open to fresh understandings, to be able to discern and differentiate. Because so often we're not aware we have fixed beliefs. We're not aware we have biases. And the more open we are, the more possible it is for those to be revealed. And the more we really get that it's not personal, the less identification there is around the old biases. So there's no shame around them. It's, oh, there were causes and conditions that led to me having that belief. And now I'm seeing it in a different way. No blame. But we can incorporate fresh, fresher and fresher ways of seeing. And so it's like there's no limit to the depth of understanding. And as I'm speaking, I'm feeling that sort of dissolving of, of boundaries in a way. There's a sense of how immeasurable that is, the possibility of new knowing, um, being open to mystery. The less fixed the views are, the more possibility there is to experience others with fresh eyes, ourselves, the world, and the potential for that, to keep knowing. And to be able to sense really deeply the interconnection with all of life. And from that can come um, action that is more likely to be a benefit to ourselves and others. I'd also like to say a little bit more about um, the identification because sometimes um, people can use this sense of um, not me, not mine, not you, not yours to um, have a bit of a uh, kind of righteousness about it Um, and maybe an example. So um, some friends I know were um, were um, in robes, young women in Asia, and so um, they really noticed the difference between the way the male monastics were treated and the way the women were. You know, the women ate after the men. The food that was left, they ser- you know, it was just like the, that traditional um, inequality, and. Um, when they talked about it, they were told that um, everyone is equal. It's just your mind. <laughs> you know, it is. It, there's no. There's no one. It, you know. There's no one. It's all. You know. One. Whatever it is. I don't remember the exact words. And so, that may be true. However, the way it manifests in reality is in in the um, relative world is that there's suffering caused by um, by those separations. 
So the um, the ultimate experience is that we're not separate. There is no difference. There's no he or she or difference, be- you know, color, whatever it is. There's a truth in that. But there's also um, in the relative world of how we behave, differentiations are made that are harmful. And so we need to be able to recognize that rather than if you were fully enlightened, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> because the suffering is there and the suffering matters. And so it's how we use this sense of self. We can use it in a way that's beautiful and non-harming and inclusive. Or it can be used in a way that's harmful. And so that's why wisdom includes discernment. Discernment about is this leading to freedom from suffering or is this leading to harm for me and for others? And to really being able to discern that clearly. And so for me, um, the discernment piece is really valuable. Being able to see is this going in a skillful direction and or not? What am I feeding <laughs> uh, with um, in, in some traditions, in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, they talk about watering seeds, different seeds. The, um, the, um, the conscious storage consciousness, sorry, I've forgotten the phrase for it. And whatever we water, that's what will grow, whatever we pay attention to. And so wisdom is discerning what's useful here to pay attention to. So it's the wisdom of where we're choosing to pay our attention, what we want to look at and see. So it's like an um, noticing when we have um, a fixation and what direction we're going in. Um, And so the way we're cultivating the possibility of knowing that is this open, balanced, kind attention that we're doing here. A balance between concentration and stillness. Sorry, between reflecting and stillness. Um, In the Dhammapada, it says there's no concentration without wisdom and there's no wisdom without concentration. So it's that balance between the two. So our mindfulness isn't just paying attention to what's here and allowing however it is. And Gil mentioned that when he was talking about allowing. It's not just watching states arise and pass. There is a skillful means of knowing Do I want to continue these thoughts or speech or action? Because we see how we're shaping the present moment. We understand causes and conditions, that conditionality that's part of wisdom. Um, We can see where we're feeding a pattern of judging. 
and how it's growing <laughs> and spiraling. And um, do I really want to take that exit off the freeway again? And we can begin to see the about-to moment of taking that exit and knowing this is not a skillful direction. And it's not now, here. So we can say, just this, or this too, to whatever's arisen, but also not now to continuing to feed it. So there's a discernment there. And we begin to see and understand what are the things that I'm doing that's feeding this? What are the things I'm doing this that's allowing the beauty to appear? And some of that is also talking about energy and effort, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, The other thing about wisdom is that we're learning from everything. It's nothing that arises is a mistake. There's no wrong experience. Everything is a stepping stone to freedom. All of life is practice. Everything. Awakening is possible within every experience, not separate from it. Sometimes I've had something come up and, oh no, not this again. And then reframing that to oh, this is another opportunity (laughs) to see if I can be with this in a different way. And that's so useful. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Now I have another opportunity. And often it's really helpful. So we have a mind that's inquisitive and curious and open. And it's not satisfied with limited or biased or fixed views. Pema Chodron says, With this unfixated mind of wisdom, we practice the other paramis, moving from narrow-mindedness to flexibility and fearlessness. So we're continually opening and letting go. We're not buying into a permanent sense of self, or a future, or a past. It's what's here, what's happening right now. And we're having the wisdom of letting things be. I don't have to get it right. Um, You know, seeing those particular patterns. Um... And also having the wisdom of not knowing. It's okay to not know. Sometimes we're really caught in thinking, we have to know. I have to figure it out. Or the thinking part of our mind, some of us, it's so trained, it's really hard to stop getting in there and trying to fix it, rather than resting back in. It's okay to not know and trusting that if we keep staying present and open and being with what's here, that our own wisdom will start to untangle and reveal it to us. 
And sometimes it's a humility. Oh, it's delusion that's here. (laughs) And not identifying with the delusion, not becoming the deluded one, but just, oh, confusion is here. Delusion is here. This is what delusion is like. Getting to know it, its flavors. Sometimes people ask, well, what's a wise choice? How do I know what's a wise choice when we're caught in decisions? Um, this is from Tanisaru Bhikkhu. The Buddha had a simple test for measuring wisdom. You're wise, he said, to the extent that you can get yourselves to do things that you don't like doing but know will result in happiness and that you can refrain from doing the things that you like doing but know will result in pain and suffering. And then, of course, there's the capacity to know the difference. (laughs) But that's hard, isn't it? It's so often we know what will bring happiness, but getting ourselves to do it isn't so easy. And that's where the other paramis that we'll be talking about more, persistence, patience, and so forth, support wisdom. And to refrain from the things that we like, but no aren't so useful, there's renunciation, and also the understanding of non-harming. He also talks about the wisdom of trading candy for gold, of that short-term pleasure (laughs) that we know rather than realizing that that doesn't last very long and I still haven't resolved the emotion underneath it or whatever it was that was fueling, fueling it. And the final piece of, um, wisdom that, um, I'd like to sort of, um, emphasize is that piece again that Gil was talking about of clinging, of really seeing how clinging is so powerful, that holding on. It's so um, instinctual to hold on. And um, I've sat a a few retreats with um, Analio, Bhikkhu Analio, who's taught here and I think is coming here very soon. And sometimes when he's guiding a meditation, he'll drop in very softly, don't cling. (laughs) And then you feel that, ah, and wherever you were clinging (laughs) is encouraged to release. Even if you didn't know it was there, don't cling. (laughs) He wouldn't say anything else, just that. And the other thing he said that stayed with me was, Keep calmly knowing change. So you can rest knowing the change, knowing the change, and keep calmly knowing it. And there's something about that that you can relax, and that tendency to grab hold isn't quite so strong. Oh, I'm calmly knowing change. Or change is calmly being known. Clinging is calmly being known. Because clinging is also a state. 
it too comes and goes. So we don't have to get upset about seeing that holding on is happening. This is just a moment of holding on. This is just a moment of clinging. When we become the one who clings, that solidifies it. Something arises, there's liking, there's grasping and holding on, and then there's seeing that, a mind state that sees it arises. Oh, I shouldn't be holding on. (laughs) We identify around that. And this big sort of ball of stuff (coughs) is stuck there. And with the the calm, clear, keep calmly knowing change, we can rest back this a bit of distance and we see how the whole thing was put together. And in seeing that, it starts naturally to fall apart. And what are we released into when the clinging ceases? And again, Gil was talking about that beautifully. What are we releasing into? And so often what's revealed is the beautiful qualities of the heart, mind. And so being present and available for that. Not looking for it, but just allowing it to show and reveal itself. So there's not an I looking for an experience. If there's an I looking for an experience, that identification and solidity prevents you from seeing it, in a way. It's like you're fishing like this, (laughs) and you're not aware of the fish jumping up all around. So, I will talk a little bit more about virya. And virya is this enthusiastic joy that really inspires our practice. And um, one of the ways I've sort of really enjoyed (laughs) exploring with virya and energy and this sort of full commitment to our practice is to have an analogy of riding a bicycle. Sometimes, depending on causes and conditions as you're riding a bicycle, you have to pedal hard to get up a hill and you're using more effort. And then conditions may change and you don't need as much effort anymore. You can coast. You're still really pleasant. Your bicycle is upright but there's no need to pedal. And then suddenly you may be going downhill and there's a sense of freedom and relief. And then you come to another hill, the conditions have changed again. (laughs) And you need more energy and effort to pedal. And so it's that balance of effort that really supports our practice. And that's one of the things as we come to practice that we often struggle with is how to balance that, to find that space between striving and spacing out that so often can happen. Um, It's um, that sometimes we take the instructions 
um, literally, the Buddha says, strive on with diligence, <laughs> or there's a translation of that. And we come in from our Western culture and really get caught in having to get it right. Am I working hard enough? Am I working hard enough? And getting really tight. And then it's hard for the mind to settle when it's so tight. We can get headaches and difficult energy states because the energy is getting agitated by that striving. Or we come in and we completely let go and we fall asleep. And so there's a initially um, a more, um, I call it, gross coarse tuning. <laughs> we have to over here or back again. And then as we practice, the tuning is finer, a little bit this way, a little bit that way, balancing the energy and finding that place of relaxed, present attention. And so the energy and effort is just enough to be right here. And sense that right now, just to be aware of the body and the sensations in the body doesn't require a lot of effort. It's just remembering. It's a mental muscle rather than a physical muscle. But it's being able to keep the continuity of that presence that's so hard. So it's that commitment to effort and energy that's the important piece, the commitment to keep coming back. Often it's talked about practice as though your hair is on fire. <laughs> and that can sound like, you know, as though it really mattered. And so um, Christina Feldman calls it, we get it into postponement practice. <laughs> we can do it later. We can do it later. I'll fully commit myself later, after I've had a nap, when I've had a cup of tea. Or maybe we're just sort of here and we're with every other breath, but we're not fully here. And so it's that full commitment to keep coming back, but without striving. I'm here for myself. Here I am again. Oh, I can include this too. So it's curious, alive, fresh every moment. If when you leave the hall, you feel, I need a break before I do walking, I'm tired, then you've probably been striving. There's been too much effort. When there's this gentle continuity, it doesn't feel like, do you don't feel like you're tiring yourself out with your practice. It's just this interest that brings energy. Faith really supports um, energy. And so does wisdom. Wisdom can, because the more we start to see clearly, we get inspired. Oh, that's how it is. And it's that inspiration that informs the energy for practice. The more clearly we see, the more the energy wants to keep going. There's just 
um, and then I think there are these five Buddha loves his lists, and in the list of the five faculties they're called, faith inspires energy. And in another list, the seven factors of awakening, um, these beautiful qualities also that lead to liberation, it's interest that leads to more energy. The more interest we have in our practice, the more the energy will build. And then the interest and the energy become joyful. And in the um, Mahayana, the paramis, of, um, it's like joy and energy are joined. And so it becomes joyful enthusiasm, passion for practice. And it's a passion that's balanced. So it's not out of balance. The energy in the body isn't restless or over the top. It's just if there's a feeling of being alive and engaged. It's like a full presence of engagement. And sometimes we don't have that. We, we get overcome with difficulty, or maybe there's fatigue, or we're caught in doubt, or we're sleepy and tired and discouraged by maybe there's pain or whatever it is that's pulling us away. And that bringing in just a little bit of interest with kindfulness, that's mindfulness and kindness, supports the capacity to for that little bit of interest to come that leads to energy again. And also, wisdom helps us see when, oh, there's not, the energy's low right now. We need rest. We need to just rest. It's like you're trying to kayak in white water and you need to just pull into an eddy for a while and rest and get your breath. So it's knowing, what's the energy like in my body right now? It's depleted. Rest is needed. Wisdom reveals that. Or wisdom reveals there's a lot of agitated energy in the body. Calming is needed. Um, Stop investigating. (laughs) Stop thinking too much. Like calming becoming, inviting the body to relax. So wisdom helps us make skillful use of our energy. And the energy supports us to see clearly. They're really um, coming together, supporting each other. I don't really use all this stuff I've written down, <laughs> but if it's here, then <laughs> um, sometimes it reminds me of things I wanted to say. Yes, um, in our lives and in our practice, sometimes there are things that our energy sinks that drain energy. And the wise discernment, as I was saying before, recognizes that wherever we're putting our attention, that's where our energy is going. 
And so that's why we ask you to unplug from electronic devices because a lot of energy goes there. And then there's not energy for practice or for clear seeing. And we can, in our lives, we can question, is this really where I want my energy to go? Is this feeding what I value most? And on, in our practice, we can notice throughout the day, what am I putting my energy towards? What's it feeding? And we can see what's supporting um, the balance of energy. Am I paying attention in a way that's making the mind more agitated to some story that's, that's increasing the agitation? And then we can um, um, refocus the attention to something that's calming to balance the energy that might be fully being in the body. It might be just stopping what's happening in the body right now and staying and allowing the body to calm. So really paying attention, where am I, sorry, really noticing where am I paying attention? What am I being mindful of to help the energy um, follow skillful intention? And the other night I was talking about the three wise intentions of renunciation, kindness, compassion. And we can align our energy with those three intentions rather than aligning the energy with desire and judgment and aversion and so forth. And noticing that. So we're balancing our energy, we're relaxing rather than striving, and we're also honoring our deepest aspiration. And that's what F wise effort is about. It's by about really knowing what's my deepest aspiration and feeding that. The wise efforts, as they're called, are withdrawing from putting energy and attention in places that don't serve us or lead to harm, and rechanneling the energy into cultivating the beautiful qualities and things that bring benefit. It's like honoring our, our capacities, honoring those seeds of potentiality, of releasing the assumptions and biases and opening us to see things as they actually are. Seeing that when we hold on to certain senses of self and identity, that can block energy. You can feel that in the body. When you're stuck in a certain assumption or belief, you can feel the energy is blocked. And when it releases, or when you've been caught in some story and you come to the emotion underneath it and really feel it, the energy releases, maybe through tears or through, um, oh, there's a movement and a freeing that comes with that 
as we release the fixed beliefs and assumptions. And so we start to begin to show up in our practice because, not because of um, a should, but because we really feel that this is what we want to do. There's an alignment with this is the direction I want to put my energy. It, It naturally comes. And actually, it's not that even I want to put my energy. It's, oh, look, that's um, what, <laughs> that's the way guide, there's, and there's <laughs> it's funny how hard it is not to say I, but there's an awareness that this isn't about me. It's not personal. It's coming through. It's revealing itself. Trusting the inner wisdom to, um, to do it itself to get out of the way, in a way, to trust. So I'd like to end with this. Again, it's from Bhikkhu Bodhi. May I be filled with inexhaustible energy, vigor, and fortitude in cultivating the path to enlightenment and in working for the benefit of others. And he said also, may my wisdom grow as vast as space, as deep as the ocean, as luminous as the sun, dispelling the darkness of ignorance and illuminating the true nature of all things. So sensing the possibility of that. For ourselves, for every being, 